Today, I'm going to be painting with a really, really broad brush, right? I'm going to get everybody with this brush, but not everybody's in the same place. Not everybody has the same passion or, or frankly, lack of passion, okay? So don't let the fortresses, don't let the voice of that one that I just bound up in Jesus' name get into your head and try to bring you condemnation. Your absolute goal of life should be to be transformed into the perfect likeness of Jesus Christ. So that you might accomplish every good work that he has, bringing glory back to him and to the Father. Okay? Anything that brings condemnation isn't from God. Because condemnation is for Satan. Jesus took all the condemnation. Conviction is okay because it helps us. It's, it's what steers us. It helps us to know when we might be going in a wrong direction in a certain part of our thought life or, or our actual where we live in our life. Okay? So I'm painting with a broad brush. Everybody needs to hear this word. It, it will be for all of us. It should be for all of us a message of conviction. But you need to know it comes from God in love because he wants everything that's good for us. Anything that's outside of Jesus doesn't bring us blessing. It brings us curse, right? So if we're seeking out to be like Christ, the fruit of that is blessing. Okay, enough on that. Youth. I asked Michael if you guys could stay in here today because a bunch of us are going to have to break off stuff to get to where God wants us to be. You're at a place where not a lot of that junk has got on you yet. So you can kind of push your little reset button. You don't have to change too much. So it'll be a good message for you. Um, It won't be as great as if Pastor Michael preached it, but I'll do my very best. But I want you guys to hear it because you might as well understand now, right now, what God is saying to the church and why we need his power and his presence. Okay, I already told you about Wednesday night. Let me start with a couple questions. (laughs) <laughs> you're going to answer them different now. <laughs> when you first heard about these revival meetings, what was your perspective? You don't have to answer me. I'll give you some answers that might have been in your head. One of them might have been, I really didn't think about it that much. Um, another one might have been, you know, I could take them or I could leave them. You know, I get a good fill on Sunday mornings kind of thing. Another one might have been, seriously, you think I'm coming to church four times in three days? Come on, pastors. I got a life to live here. But maybe some of you said, Man, bring it on. More, Lord. More, Lord. More, Lord. See, the way we, we look at the opportunity to bring revival, revival, and I'll talk about what that is in a minute, revival to this church and this world speaks a lot to how we see our relationship with God in general. So it's like, you know, hey, that sounds like an interesting idea. You know, I'm, if, I, if I'm not doing anything that day, maybe I'll come to one of those meetings. Is a reflection of how we see God in, in, in our call unto him Because it's not casual like that. We're soldiers in an army with the opportunity to to cause things to happen on behalf of him. See, the time when we get to rest, so to speak, enter into his rest, is heaven. In heaven, oh my gosh, no opportunity to do this. Finley almost died. Sorry, I'm going to tell you a little of your testimony. Finley almost died. He thought he was dying. He's a paramedic. He's a fireman. He knows all about what the monitors in the ambulance mean, he thought he was dying. You know the only thought that kept coming to his mind? Lord, I haven't done anything for you. I haven't done anything for you. Didn't die, thank God. Thank you, Lord. I love Finley. But it brought to him a perspective that some people get when they think they're dying and they die. And, and maybe they still get to go to heaven, but they get to stand before their Lord, and it's a different experience than they wish it would be. Let me ask you another question. If you were to say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, you know, the best and 1 being, uh uh-oh, 
check your salvation kind of thing. Where would you say your personal life with the Lord is relative to what He would be calling it to be? Now, again, you don't need to answer me. This is for you and for me. Trust me, nobody will be more convicted by this message, and I have been convicted by this message since God's been stirring it inside of me. But is it a 2? Is it a 5? Is it an 8? If anybody says it's a 10, I mean, I don't know you that well, but I would say you've been deceived if you think it's a 10 or a 9 or an 8. And the Lord, he gave me this, I call it deception of improper comparison. Now, comparison in itself is not improper. Comparison is necessary. It's a deception of improper comparison that has us to a place when I'm not asking the question, when you say, hey, you know, eight. I'm an eight. Eight's pretty good. See, but it's the same thing that's going on in the world. If you go out on the street and you had the boldness to stop ten people, and you said, hey, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Most of them, maybe eight or nine of them, would say yes. Maybe, depending on who you picked, all ten of them would say yes. And you'd say, well, okay, cool, I'm happy for you. Why do you think that? And most of them would tell you, because I'm a decent person. If you were to ask the next question, was how do you know you're a decent person? You know what they would say? Because I can find people that are less decent. I compare me, wait a minute, no, not to you. I oh, can't compare myself to pick rats. Um, that one over there, that one, see that murderer, bad person right there? That one's not going to heaven. But I'm better than that one, so I'm going to go to heaven. Are they going to heaven because they're better than that one? No. Are they going to heaven because they're good? Are they going to heaven because they're as good as Mother Teresa? No. What should they be comparing themselves with? Scripture. Scripture tells us. Right? Mother Teresa, outside of placing her faith and confessing Jesus as the Lord of her life, all her good works are garbage compared to God's holiness. So the devil gets the world to compare itself to each other so that they'll feel good about themselves. I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. I don't need the Bible, all that whatever. Because he's using comparison as a deception. Same is true in the church. Exactly same is true in the church. Here's why I say that. You come to church. And listen, you is somebody else. It's not you guys, right? It's me. You can pretend it's me. Come to church. And, and somebody says, hey, you know, what's your walk with the Lord like? And you say, well, okay, I don't look at Pick again. I don't look at Keith too much. I don't look at Rachel. I find somebody I can look at. And I say, well, you know, compared to most people, I'm just as good of a church person. I'm a good Christian. So, you know, I'm all right. I'm doing good. God's happy with me. God, God loves me, so it must be okay. He does love you, but that's not what measures these things. What should be your measure to whether or not you're walking with Jesus the way you should. Is it looking at each other? No, because we'll find the, our flesh will find the lowest common denominator and feel good about it. We'll all get there. We'll look around and we'll say, okay. By comparison, okay, God does not grade on a class curve. There is no class curve. There's an absolute thing that is his word. If you wonder, how am I doing in my walk with the Lord? Open that book and read it. And it will convict you or it will bless you. It will probably convict you and bless you. The place where you're blessed, you say, thank you, Lord. That would have never happened without you. But this place over here where I'm convicted needs more of you. I'm taking that part and putting it on the altar so that all of me can look like all of you. The deception of comparison. Comparison is the thing to do. It's what we compare ourselves with that will tell us whether we're in truth or we're not. Okay.
So today I'm going to talk about repentance and I'm going to talk about revival. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repentance. What was Jesus' very first message? Repent. For what purpose? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember that. If I forget, that's how this message needs to end. What was Jesus' message? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. For that purpose, we need to repent. Because the kingdom is at hand and we're going to miss it. It's going to blow right, well, it won't even blow right by us because it's going to stay in heaven. Pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your means. It means that we pray to him that this world would set his name apart as holy. That nobody would use his name like it was common. It will happen because he'll make it happen because he told us to pray it. We'll pray it. He'll reflect it back to here. Very next thing. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How will it happen? We'll pray it. That's how it's going to happen. His kingdom will come. But it doesn't come if we don't repent. It can't come in the way that we think. It can't come in the way that the Pharisees and the religious leaders think. I really believe that part of John the Baptist's message to the Jews of that time wasn't just repent from your evil, sinful ways, which is absolutely true to receive the kingdom, but it was also repent from the way you expect the kingdom to come. Because they expected the king to look like a Roman warrior, tougher and better and stronger than Rome, and that Rome would be crushed. You could even see in the end of the time that Jesus walked with his guys, after he's been crucified, after he's been resurrected, just before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, they still ask him, when are you going to bring the kingdom? And he's like, no, 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 no. It's not that kingdom. It's the kingdom that overcomes sin and death. So if we don't repent from bad thinking, we'll miss the kingdom. It won't come from heaven to earth. Repentance. Repentance is like, there's three words, at least in my New American Standard, in the Greek, that are translated to repent or some form of repent. One of those words is a repent that is, they all, the first two represent the changing of the way you think. The third one literally is repentance. It's like the fruit of changing the way you think. The first word, which is not the word that John the Baptist used, which is not the word that Jesus used, but it is to repent, is a way that says you change the way you think. And you might change the way you think unto um, sorrow and sadness to your previous way, but it's not a repentance that changes the way you think unto changing the way you behave. That that you're sorry, it's like, oh... I'm sorry. I got caught. I'm sorry. It hurt. I'm sorry. That's not good. But I continue to do it over and over again. That's a repentance in, in maybe it's even not changing the way you think. It's recognizing, but it's not changing. The second one is to not only recognize, not only to feel godly sorrow, but to actually change as a result of the new perspective that you have in your thinking. And then the third is literally repentance. It's that fruit. It's what's happened in the, the process of being made aware of sin, of recognizing it, changing from it, and literally choosing to hate it to the place where you wouldn't want to do it again. Now, does it mean if, you, if you've repented from a thing that you, might ne- that you will never ever do it again? I hope it does. But it doesn't always happen that way. Because... What Jesus taught us in Romans chapter 6 is that slave is not our master anymore. It doesn't own us to the place where it controls us because we have the Holy Spirit's power inside of us to absolutely say no to sin. But sometimes we stumble. That's what grace is for. 
So you don't walk out of your salvation. You don't walk out of Jesus when you stumble with a, with a heart that's still turned towards him. That's what grace is for. Okay? So if, you, if you've repented and then you've stumbled, don't let the devil beat you all up and say, oh, you know, I never really repented. You probably did because you were sincere, but you haven't been sanctified totally in that part of your life to the place where maybe you're never ever going to do it again. But you can get to that place where you never ever do it again. That's what it means to be walking in holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. It's not, it's not a pipe dream that happens in heaven only. It's, a, it's not a pipe dream. It, it, it's a reality that happens if we choose it. But we have to be so tight with God, so intertwined with the Holy Spirit, so aware of his presence because we've sought him out that when sin tries to come and get us, it can't deceive us because the Holy Spirit is so present in us that we say, no, no, I recognize you. Okay? Okay. Are we good on repentance? Let me just read the scripture anyway. Uh, I'm not totally sure how it fits, but he gave it to me. It's a good one. I like it. So Matthew 11, chapter 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most... Let me stop. When revival comes, like full-on revival comes, we are going to so demonstrate the kingdom of heaven like Jesus did. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the sick will become well, the lost will be found, the tormentor will become free. All the chains are going to come off. Okay? He's talking to the places that saw this. Okay? Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, you know who Sodom is? God burned Sodom up. It was, the, it was like the biblical worst place ever. Listen to what he says to Capernaum relative to Sodom. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Sodom would have been more repentant than you were, Capernaum. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See, Jesus didn't go to these, talk to these cities and say, oh, you know, you didn't believe. He said, you didn't repent. You heard, you saw, and you continued on the same way. If that's the way we respond to Jesus, it is not a good outcome. All right, let's talk about revival. We'll go to the dictionary to start because the dictionary does a great job of defining for us what revival looks like for us. Think of a church like um, like we're going to hear about in just a minute. Th- think of a, of a person. They're not dead, but they can't hardly do much. They're just kind of like, you know, maybe they're laying in bed and, and you know, they, they can barely lift their arm to eat a little food. And then... God comes, the doctor comes with the defibrillators and puts them on their chest and pow, that heart just doesn't just start beating again. It becomes twice its size. It's like a Lance Armstrong heart on steroids. And, and they get revived and they jump out of it. It's like Superman. 
Superman, Clark Kent, mild-mannered, right? I mean, thanks, that's a good one. Everybody knows Superman, right? So he's this guy, nice guy. Everybody likes Clark. You make fun of him a little bit. He's not a tough guy. He walks through his life. He's Clark Kent. Then he goes into the phone booth. What happens in the phone booth? It's an R word. Revival happens. And he comes out and he's got a cape. And he can fly through the air and leap tall buildings in a single bound. And he can beat up all the bad guys. That's revival. Go in, we're going into the phone booth. Everybody bring a cape. You're going to need it. Because I'm not sure you can fly without the cape. You don't want to like bump into a tree or something. You want to fly good. So the dictionary says revival. Think of it like that. Cause to regain consciousness. Give new life or energy to. Be brought back to life. Consciousness or strength to expand, flourish, or thrive. Restore from a depressed, inactive, or unused state. Unused state. Regenerate, rejuvenate, restore. See, the conviction on my heart is that's us right there. Because we don't compare ourselves with what the Bible says we should expect. We compare ourselves with each other. We compare ourselves with history. And we say, well, that's it. Matter of fact, there's whole doctrines that have been written around God doesn't heal today. Do you know that God doesn't heal today? He doesn't do miracles today. Why not? Because I prayed for somebody and they didn't get well. I don't want that to be because of me. So I can't blame God, right? Because he could do anything. So let me think. How do I get this off of my back? I can't put it on God's back. Oh, he changed his mind. He doesn't heal anymore. That was for apostolic times. That was for back because they needed to demonstrate the church. And now we all know. And we got this thing, which is, you know, the be all, end all to everything. We got the book. So he doesn't heal people anymore because he doesn't need to. Baloney. Jesus died and took sickness with him. Would God put all that on him and then not want to take it off us? Ah, I'm going to give it to you too. No. No. He heals. He's powerful. But we're not healing people. Who healed somebody last week? Nobody did. None of us. That's because there weren't any sick people because we already healed them all, right? Honestly, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. A little bit I am trying to make you feel bad, but not just a little. Let God make you feel bad. But my point is, you didn't do it either because you didn't think you were supposed to or you didn't think if you did it, anything would happen. There's no faith in that. God is not pleased. God is so pleased if you go pray for somebody that's sick and and they don't get healed because you pleased them by doing it because you had a little bit of faith. His job to heal them, not yours. Did you make them sick? Okay, don't make people sick. That's not the objective of this. Okay, so if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to go make somebody sick, that wasn't the message today, all right? You heal them. Now, can you heal them? I mean, people want to yell, you know, you can't heal only God. I know God can heal, but remember the beginning today, right? He does what he wants to do when his church goes to do it. So if someone's going to get healed, it's going to be because he went through his church to get that done. Okay, I'm doing what you prayed right now. None of this is in here. (laughs) Okay. So the deception of comparison is when we use the wrong thing to compare to. What do we have to compare to, right? We have the church. We have the early church. Man, I should go to this part first. Let me just tell you this. Let me ask you another question. Did Christianity evolve from Judaism? Or, this is a trick question, Or was Christianity born from Judaism? It didn't evolve, right? It was an old covenant. It's not a tweaked covenant. It's a new covenant. When you were dead in your sin, did God evolve us? Did he just kind of evolve us into this place of starting to look like Jesus? He did not. You weren't evolved into a Christian. You died and you were born again. 
You're a new creature in Christ. So, back in, you know, time zero, Jesus' time, Judaism was, oh man, I'm going outside. Judaism, God embraced a people for a purpose. And, and, and largely they failed at the purpose they were embraced for. But he prophesied that one was going to come out of Judaism. Right? That's what he told the woman at the well. That the, the Messiah would come from the Jews. He was speaking of himself. So the church was not evolved. It was born. So let me read you some scriptures. Let me find them because we're way out of order in the message here. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you about them. <laughs> here we go. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. So Jesus walks for three or three and a half years. He teaches, he demonstrates, he anoints so that they can go and teach and demonstrate. He fulfills his work. He, he hangs on the cross. He dies dead. He goes into the tomb. He's resurrected back to life from the tomb. And for like 40 days, he continues to interact with his disciples. Like over 500 people saw him after he was raised from the dead. That's this. That's now. Just before he goes away. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? See, they still don't get it. They're thinking this different kingdom that looks kind of like Rome looks, only we're tougher than Rome. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. So he's starting to tell them that this is going to be you. This is going to be you. He hasn't he called them church yet, I don't think, but this is going to be you. You're going to be my witness with power to the whole world. You read a little bit further on in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James and the son of Alphaeus and all their friends. All these guys are there. These, these, see this is important. This part right here is what we got to get. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary and other people. So, these guys, they, they took what Jesus said and they, and they stayed in the city and they waited and they prayed. And they didn't like be praying for a bunch of different things. They were praying that this power, this gift of God would come. The helper was going to come. They were united in their focus. You go a little further into chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And the Spirit was, or as the Spirit was giving them utterance. People differ on their opinion of when the church was actually born, just like when you made the confession and you were born again, when, when the church, the body of Jesus was born, was either right there. That's what most people would say was the birth of the church. But earlier on, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So 
You can argue about it. I don't really care. It was 2,000 years ago. The church was born is the point. It came to life. It became something that it wasn't before because God sent the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay, so now, now we have a church, right? Then we had a church. Now we have a church. The comparison that we have to make is to the example that God gave us. So if we say, hey, are we a church? God, am I, am I a pleasing pastor leading your sheep to the places that you want them to go? Are we, are we being a church how you call us to be a church? He says, well, look in Acts and see. You can compare it to my word. And that's what we're going to do next. Now, it's a ton of scripture. Um, are you going to do it by yourself? Oh, you need to get away from here. Do it over here from the middle. Just to help me, Teresa is going to read these scriptures. But I want you to hear these in, in, in the context of this is how God designed the church. Is that the way the church is today? Go ahead, honey. These, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. All right, go on. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many, many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and all things had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day... Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with the gladness with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, let me ask you to pause just a minute. So, 2,000 and however many years ago, the church was born. And there was this... I'm trying to think if you're familiar with like a graph, you know. There was this this church that, that was following this path, this pattern, okay? It was, it was following this path. And then as time went on, the path never changed. This is what the path was to result in. But I think the church started to part from the path a little bit, right? If you're, if you're paying attention to the things that you're devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer, are we devoted to those things? Seriously, we're not. I mean, honestly, all of us, I'm the most convicted, are not devoted to those things. This is the sign that's going to accompany those who believe. Well, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. They'll drink deadly poison. It won't hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Okay, go on. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go. Go ahead. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they gathered together was was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, stop there for just a minute. That, That last two passages go together. There's a little gap in the middle. Basically, God did a miracle through them. 
and people were starting to follow Jesus. And I don't remember if they did it on the Sabbath or what, what they did that made the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders angry. But they got angry and they called them and they threatened them. And they told them, you stop this. And they heard all that. And their response was to go back and ask God not to protect them. They asked God to fill, give them more boldness. Don't let me dare be afraid to preach your word. Make me even more bold than the boldness that got me pulled in front of those guys and threatened. Bring me more boldness. Sometimes I ask the Lord, bring me any boldness. I'm far from the line. Go ahead, continue. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Selah. Go on. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all in, with one accord in, Sol- in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. that they were uh, bringing them on cots for us personally, that they will bring them to cots. Amen? <laughs> Seriously. That's, amen. All right, continue. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Man, if you speak, he says, the words will be given to you. And the wisdom of this world cannot stand before the wisdom of God. Continue. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great much rejoicing in that city. Continue. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen for that. More, Lord. Go ahead and read that last one. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So, would anybody argue with me that whatever was the straight line that God painted for us with the early church 
is a line that we've departed, probably this way would be better, that we've departed from over these 2,000 years, right? And, and it didn't take 2,000 years to do it. It didn't start 20 years ago. It started probably almost immediately after the church was born, right? Okay, so what happened? They, they got persecuted, right? They, they, they got distracted. They got misled. All these different things happened, and the church started to depart from being what it was called to be almost immediately, right? How do we know that? Because we have the Bible. And while the Bible paints a picture of what the church looks like in its purity, in its wholeness, in its strength, it also shows us that he had to write letters through the apostles. Peter wrote letters. Someone wrote a letter to the Hebrews. Hey, hang in there. Be strong. You haven't been persecuted to the point of death yet. Stay in there. We have these letters that the apostles have written to help the church to see that they had to persevere, that they had to hold on, that you've departed, you're listening to wrong teaching, you're getting distracted. Now, that wasn't the sole purposes of the letters. The letters also brought from God doctrine and and theology so we would understand. They didn't have the, the blessing necessarily of the book. Part of the book, yes, but not all of the book. But see, the church already had started and God was already working on that. See, the church has gotten to the place where... And how many of you saw my email I sent out the other day? Right? If you didn't see it, basically this was the message. Please, please come to church on Sunday. Because God has called us to a place. First, I'm so grateful for the fruit that's in this church. Seriously, that's in Jesus' church. Jesus' church is not dead. It doesn't need resurrected necessarily. It needs revived. But if you were to take and say, okay... Scripture says that my opportunity on this earth, if I were to look at it in the timeline of eternity from no beginning to no end, he calls it a vapor. You're outside on a cold day and you go, and you see that little thing and then it's gone. That's it. That's this life. That's the opportunity to impact what God loves for him. And it's gone just like that. He's trying to draw the church back to effectiveness. So Paul and Peter and all these guys, they write these letters to the church in general and to specific churches in different places. And then finally, Jesus starts to dictate letters to these churches himself. Literally, I don't know, he calls up John up to heaven. We think it's the apostle John. And he says, okay, write this stuff down. To the church here, to the church there, to the church here. This is what I say to you. Well, you've got to hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. This is just a sampling. To the church at Ephesus. And, and if you read Ephesians, Ephesus was like a pretty decent church. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. How many of us are different in our way of Jesus than, than we were when we first found that love? I heard your dad preach on this, Madison. Your dad, yeah. He said the problem with a bunch of people is they haven't had a first love experience. We all got to have a first love experience. That's what's going to happen. We're going to have a greater love experience, but you got to have a first one first. Otherwise, it's just hard because he's a guy in a book that you don't really know him. We got to have a first love experience. But Ephesus had left their first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
Come back to that first love. To the church at Sardis, Jesus says this, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, it will come like a thief. Or excuse me, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few, I love this part, you have a few people in Sardis who have not dirtied their diapers, who have not soiled their garments, and will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, there's a, there's a part of the church that was walking with him, hadn't soiled their garments. The church of Laodicea, this is the one that so badly convicts me convicts me and, 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 and me on behalf of us. Jesus says this to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds. You hear I keep saying this, I know your deeds, I know your deeds, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Let me just stop for a minute. That's what this was on the floor the other day. It was, it was a poverty of spirit that, that, I don't know how to describe it. I almost wish it was somebody other than me, because the devil will get in here, well, he's the pastor, and you know, you know, somehow the pastor has this thing that with God that's, no, no, no. God is no respecter of men, no favorites, none. Just happened to be, maybe because I had been praying into this. I don't know. But see, that's the broken. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm not rich. I, I am in need of everything. Because all these things that I thought were what I needed, they're junk. They're never going to make it eternally. They're, they only get to exist while that vapor's in the air. That's what brokenness is. That's what poverty of spirit is. That's what that beatitude is speaking of. That poverty of spirit to recognize it without God, without you. So what do I do about my miserable, poor, blind, naked, wretched situation? Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I say to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I (laughs) I reprove and discipline. Therefore, He says, therefore do this, be zealous and repent. We need zeal. How do we get zeal? We've got to ask God for it. Because if we had it, we'd be doing it. It's only by the Holy Spirit. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, think think about who Jesus is. He's the guy that's just punched these guys in the face. He said, man, you're just nasty. But here I am. I'm standing at your door. I'm not telling you run up to my door. And you knock. And if I feel like you got enough gold refined by fire and enough white garments to come in, I'll open that thing a crack and check on you. No, no, no. He says, I'm standing at your door. You don't understand because you think you got all this stuff. You don't even need me. Is that how we think? Be honest. It is. He's saying, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. And if you'll open the door, I'll come in and we can have a meal. My guess is he's got carry-out. He ain't even expecting us to cook it. <laughs> I, I, I say that kind of jokingly, but it's probably true. Yeah. He brings everything. We bring nothing but just yes. That's all we bring is yes. Okay, God. 
So, after looking at Acts, the Acts church, the first thing, before it started to walk away from the line, and how Jesus spoke to the churches, does anybody disagree with me that we, we got we to gotta go back? Right. We, we, have to, we have to change. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's no shame in needing revival. There's no shame in needing revival. You know where the shame lives? Is knowing you need it and not crying out for it. Being, being apathetic about it. There's no shame in being just like every other Christian probably that wandered away from the truth and was deceived by the enemy and all kind of that stuff. But when God shines a light in your eyes and you say, yeah, I know it, but I just don't want to. There's shame in that. Because you know better. James says that in 4.17. He says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, if you think it's, well, I, you know, I'm just not good enough. I just, I'll never be able to be revived. You know, there isn't a, a defibrillator strong enough to wake this me up. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, now Paul, right? The Apostle Paul wrote little less than or more than half of the New Testament if you give him Hebrews. If you don't give him Hebrews, it's less than half. If you give him Hebrews, it's more than half. He's the guy. I mean, he is the guy. And Timothy was like his most prized person. He loved Timothy with a father's love. And he writes this to Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. You need revival, Timothy. Kindle that thing. There's still a flame in there, but I can hardly see it. It's a pilot light. It needs to be this big old blast furnace thing. Kindle that thing afresh. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Right? Peter said, Oh, I don't want a spirit of timidity. Give me boldness. Boldness. Not a spirit of timidity, but power, love, and discipline. We have the spirit that provides the power. We have the spirit in our nastiness to love. And we have the spirit that will allow us to walk in holy discipline with God. What we don't have is an excuse. What we do have is grace. But grace isn't so that you can sin. It's because you did sin. Okay? Okay. Dang, I think I need to wear two t-shirts next week because I think parts of my shirt aren't the same color they were when I started. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right, so what do we do? What do we do? If Jesus had never come and Jesus had never died, what would you have done? You'd have had some kind of revelation somewhere or another and you'd have done your very best. It wouldn't have ever been good enough. But if, if Jesus wasn't necessary... Right? You've heard this before, but if, if it wasn't necessary for God to be part of your equation, then the ones who had the discipline, the ones who in their self had the power and made the decision to be holy unto God would go to heaven. And the ones that didn't would go to hell. And it would all sort itself out. But the Bible says nobody had what it took. Nobody did. So you can't look down your nose at somebody else and say, well, you know, you just weren't good enough, but I was, because you weren't good enough either. Nobody is. God understood that. That's why he sent us the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We say yes. We ask. We cry out. I tell you, oh my gosh, I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to yell at you. I'm seriously not trying to yell at you. Because I'm only where I'm at. And in, in, in other parts, and maybe all of you, I don't know, I'm not trying to compare us. But God has woke me up, awoke, awakened, woke me up to, to the need to pray and cry out with, with just a passionate heart of, I cannot do this without you. 
And the scripture teaches that. It teaches that. Let's look at like um, Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. You want a greater revelation of God? You got to go get him. That's what he's telling us. Remember, we pull it down. Ask, seek, knock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How do you get it? You pull it down. You go get him. You say, God, I got to have more because I see a gap between what you're calling me to and what I'm doing, the way I'm living, the way I think. The devil is in my head. There's fortresses. There's strongholds. God, they won't come down unless you come break them down. I need you. That's what he's talking about here. He wants us to have the kingdom, but he's created an economy that it comes when we ask for it. And if we say, okay, well, cool, God, send me some kingdom. Well, must not be his will. No, because you didn't read what he said. You've got to continually ask, continually seek. You've got to really want it. You've got to be passionate about it. Be zealous and repent, says Jesus to the church at Laodicea. Second Chronicles 7.14 God speaking of his people and my people who are called according to my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Is there grace for God to hear us even sometimes when we're less than outstanding? Yeah, I think there is. But what he's saying is, you want to ask big things. He's stirring in us to need and ask big things. Jesus said to the tree, die, and it died. He said to the storm, be still, and it was. It says that Jesus was heard in Hebrews because of his like piety and his crying out to God. Jesus, who was God, called on God in a way that was so passionate and so broken in spirit that we should learn from that. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he, God, is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who seek him. What do you think the reward is? It's him. When we seek him, and we believe in him, and we have faith in him, and we diligently say, God, I need you, I need you, I need more of you, I need revelation of you. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. What's the knowledge? It's God. We've got to have you, God. How do we do it? How do we make it happen? We humble ourselves. We humble ourselves. We recognize that we're broken without Jesus. We're totally broken without Jesus. Now, understand there's a part that's that's the the essence of us that's that's absolutely beautiful and wonderful. And it's what God is going to get back. Jesus as a bride is going to get back. But it's the part that's deceived, that's spotty and wrinkly. It all needs to be rubbed out and smoothed out by the Holy Spirit so that when we can present it to Jesus as bride, we're just that beautiful thing that God created in the very, very beginning. Okay? It has to come from brokenness. It has to come from desire. It has to come from passion and zeal, hunger and humility in a way that God will respond to. He's teaching us, here's how I will respond. Nothing will happen unless you ask. And here's how you ask. You have to really want it. You can't lay in your bed and say, oh Lord, you know, revival would be sweet. I'll see you in the morning. I mean, maybe you can. I don't think so. I don't think that's what the scriptures are teaching us. Not for the important big things. So that's what we do. Where do we start? Psalms um, 119.88. I just stumbled over this scripture. It's so beautiful. Revive me according to your... This is 
we're praying to God, the psalmist, revive me according to your loving kindness. Wake me up, revive me according to your loving kindness. Why? So that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. What's the testimony of his mouth? Let's go back and read Mark 16 again. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Now see, who's speaking these words? Jesus. This is the testimony of his mouth. Lord, revive me according to your loving, count, loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus speaking again in John twenty twenty one, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. How was Jesus sent? Sinless, preaching the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom, destroying the works of the devil, and seeking to save that which is lost. Why don't we just start in those two places? Just like that. Well, you say, oh, it's Jesus. It's like, no, no. Jesus did not access his divinity to do the stuff. It came because he cried out with these passionate prayers to the Father that he would be everything that he needed to be so that when he was placed on the altar as the sacrificial lamb of God, that he would be perfect and spotless and worthy of that sacrifice such that you and I could all have an eternal opportunity with God. It happened because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. It'll happen for us because we're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Not because that one's special and that one's not. It's because he's special. And he loves us. We're all special to him. But it will be in our passionate cry. And I'm telling you guys, it's not a game. It is not a game. We... We will all stand before the Lord and give an account. I think I put this in the email yesterday. How many are familiar with the parable of the talents? There's these three guys that God invests in. It's us. It's all of us. And in some of us, he invests this and some of them that and some of them another thing and some of it might be a big thing you know in the eyes of the world and some might be a medium size and some might be small thing but everyone has been endowed by god with stuff it's an investment for his kingdom so the 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 master goes away after having left these five three and one talents with these three servants he goes away and then he comes back to for them to give him an account And the first one says, Master, you gave me five of these things. And look, I went and invested what you gave me. And I have an additional five to return to you. And he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. I think it's joy. It's a good place. Go there. That's a good spot. Then he says, what about you, number two? And number two says, Lord, look, you gave me two to work with. And look, I brought you back another two. You got four from your two. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. And he goes to the third one. He says, what did you do? He says, well, Lord, you gave me one, and I know you're a tough guy, and you're, you, know, you do this and you do that, and well, I forget what all the words are, but I didn't want to, be, I didn't want to lose your one, so I dug a hole and put it in the ground until you came back, and I dug it back up, and here's your one. And he's like, but you returned nothing to me but what I gave you. And you know what he called that one? Not well done, good, and faithful. Wicked and lazy. You wicked and lazy servant. He didn't get to enter into his master's joy. He went to the place where there is no joy. It's not a game. He's serious. 
He's calling all of us to wake up. And that's what we're saying. Oh God, I recognize now. I mean, that's what I'm hoping you're going to say. I recognize now to whatever level of, of just right there you are, there's more. To whatever level of right there you are, there's more. God, I'm, I'm not there all the way and I can't get anywhere without you. God, you've got to help me. Please come, God. Revive me. Revive the church. The world has fallen. You love all these people that are destined for hell and I'm not doing anything about it, God. You love the sick people that are in pain and I'm not praying for them, God. That's what he's saying to us. And we're saying, okay, there's this little tiny thing that comes on Wednesday nights Faithful people. I'm not trying to jam up anybody, but I'm telling you, they're faithful people that are crying out. And you know what they're doing? They're crying out for everybody. God, that that everybody will get exposed to you in a way that I'm asking you to expose yourself to me. The revelation that I want, I want them to have because I don't think they've had it yet because if they had it, they'd be here with us and they'd be crying out to you because the thing that you love is going to be lost because we're inactive. We need to be revived. We're almost dead. Wake us up, God, please. See, he'll respond to that. That is so humble. Humble brings grace. Pride brings resistance. That's what he's asking from us. That's what he's asking me to ask you. That's what we have to respond with a yes. That's what I'm praying. God, if all we have on the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th is a wonderful experience with you, I'll write it in my journal and be happy for it. But that's not what we need. We need to be super naturally changed we have to be supernaturally convicted we have to be confronted with your beautiful glory so that we will have this this transformation that happens that our mind will be renewed that we will repent in the way we think that will drive repentance in how we live our lives so that the only opportunity we have this little vapor that you've given us when we stand in front of you we won't have to be ashamed And we can say, God, look at what you gave me. A little teeniest grain of sand to invest in. Look, I brought you two grains. Look, God, you gave me a whole city, a country, a nation. You might be Reinhard Bonnke. Look, you gave me this and I I returned to you 100 million people, souls in Africa. But I don't want to be the one that says, Lord, you know, look, you gave me five and I returned you six. Maybe enough to get through the door. He'll love me. I I promise you, if that's me on that day, I'll be so sad. So while we have the opportunity, let's do that. Now, I just, because you guys are here, are all the youth over here, okay? I want you to know that mostly we have this problem with comparison because we're old, right? You're not old, but we're all old. What you have is the world just assaulting you to try to tell you who you're supposed to be, to try to tell you what you're supposed to look like, that if you don't have the right clothes, you're not cool. You're not called to cool. You're called to be strong and courageous in the Lord and to be a light. And it's hard when all the kids wear the shorts that look like this and when you're the one who has the shorts that look like this, you have to be strong because God is investing in you and he wants a return from you. And before you get to the place where the best you can do is compare yourself with somebody else that's lukewarm, say no. Say, come on, God, help me. You've got to cry out to him just like we do. Because you see, you don't have a little baby, teenager, Holy Spirit. You have a full-on Holy Spirit. And he's calling you to the same thing he's calling these people to. You're just coming from a different place. And the attack on you is different. And you've got to be wise. You have to have Holy Spirit just anoint your mind to see it coming. Because the, the devil is so deceptive in the way that he's trying to capture your mind and capture your thoughts and lead you to a place that's not going to glorify him and ultimately will make you sad. 
You had to be the same way. And the way you get it is no different than the way they get it. You humble yourself before the Lord. And you cry out, don't let them have my mind, God. Don't let them deceive me. I need you in my head more than that magazine or that TV show or all these things that would try to tell you how you're supposed to be. They're all not true. The truth is in the book. Read the book. Have your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your pastor, somebody. You read the book. Read it to you. Ask questions so you'll know the truth. And what happens when you know the truth? It makes you free. Amen. Okay, Isaac, if you guys want to come back up. Now we got a, we got a half hour, let's say. We got a half hour or more, if you want, to worship God from the context of that. And, and if you believe, then you have faith. Faith pleases God. If you cry out to God to change, you say, well, it's worship, I'm supposed to sing this song. No, no, no. Crying out to God for his help to transform you to be like his son is to worship him. So please, please, just hear the Holy Spirit. Ask him. Ask him to tear down the fortresses. Ask him to tear down the stronghold. Ask him to reveal truth to you. Ask him to help you in any place where you see any departure from what he says to what we are. And then when you're doing that, pray for me and pray for each other because we have such an opportunity. Could you imagine if our biggest problem was that they brought their sick on cots to cots and they laid them out there because they knew they were going to get sick. What if we were like Peter and and there were so many we could only take time, put them on this side because the sun's over here and as we walk, our shadow gets cast on them. Or maybe we just rip off a little piece of this shirt And we ask, Father, that the anointing that you've given me is on this piece of shirt because I can't be over there. And I give it to you and you take it home and you put that piece of shirt on the chest of your sick loved one. And the anointing literally comes through the cloth. That's what happened with Paul. You think Paul was special? No. Peter? No. Devoted? Yes. Committed to holiness? Yes. On their knees? Yes. That can be us. And we can go and we say, look, God, you gave me five. And here's a hundred. Here's a thousand. It'd be some awesome joy. All right, Father, thank you for today. Father, I pray you convict us. I pray that you just bring Holy Spirit to bring us to that place of brokenness, Lord. Us, we, me, God, to that place of hunger and passion, humility, zealousness, repentance, Lord, that we might walk the good walk, run the good race. Just like Paul, when he finished the race, he said, I've run the good race and I'm ready. I'm ready. We won't have any regrets at all, Lord. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth and help us to be hungry and passionate for the things that you're hungry and passionate to see. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.